Welcome to podcast number three here at The Voice of the Arts. I'm your host, Joe Weber, and today I have a mixed bag of things with which to entertain you. We'll begin with a wonderful Frank O'Connor short story called My First Confession. My First Confession tells the story of a seven-year-old boy's terror of going for the first time to confess his sins. As if he weren't anxious enough, his older sister Nora walks with him to church and catalogs all the things he's done, especially the things he's done to her, reminding him that he is required to hold nothing back, for that would be a bad confession. Fortunately, he encounters a wise priest with a sense of humor and an intuitive understanding of the mind of a young boy. As with all of O'Connor's stories, the listener can experience the warmth and affection he feels for his characters and the author's playfulness and humor. First Confession, a short story by Frank O'Connor. All the trouble began when my grandfather died and my grandmother, my father's mother, came to live with us. Relations in the one house are a strain at the best of times, but to make matters worse, my grandmother was a real old country woman and quite unsuited to the life in town. She had a fat, wrinkled old face and to mother's great indignation went round the house in bare feet. The boots had her crippled, she said. For dinner, she had a jug of porter and a pot of potatoes with sometimes a bit of salt fish, and she poured out the potatoes on the table and ate them slowly with great relish, using her fingers by way of a fork. Now, girls are supposed to be fastidious, but I was the one who suffered most from this. Nora, my sister, just sucked up to the old woman for the penny she got every Friday out of the old age pension, a thing I could not do. I was too honest. That was my trouble. And when I was playing with Bill Connell, the sergeant major's son, and saw my grandmother steering up the path with a jug of porter sticking out from beneath her shawl, I was mortified. I made excuses not to let him come into the house because I could never be sure what she would be up to when we went in. When mother was at work and my grandmother made the dinner, I wouldn't touch it. Nora once tried to make me, but I hid under the table from her and took the bread knife with me for protection. Nora let on to be very indignant. She wasn't, of course, but she knew mother saw through her, so she sided with Gran and came after me. I lashed out at her with a bread knife, and after that she left me alone. I stayed there till mother came in from work and made my dinner. But when father came in later, Nora said in a shocked voice, Oh, Dada, do you know what Jackie did at dinner time? Then, of course, it all came out. Father gave me a flaking. Mother interfered, and for days after that, he didn't speak to me, and mother barely spoke to Nora. And all because of that old woman. God knows I was heart-scalded. Then to crown my misfortunes, I had to make my first confession in communion. It was an old woman called Ryan who prepared us for these. She was about the one age with Gran. She was well-to-do, lived in a big house on Montanat, wore a black cloak and bonnet, and came every day to school at three o'clock when we should have been going home, and talked to us of hell. She may have mentioned the other place as well, but that could only have been by accident, for hell had the first place in her heart. She lit a candle took out a new half-crown, and offered it to the first boy who would hold one finger, only one finger, in the flame for five minutes by the school clock. Being always very ambitious, I was tempted to volunteer, 
but I thought it might look greedy. Then she asked, were we afraid of holding one finger, only one finger, in a little candle flame for five minutes, and not afraid of burning all over and roasting hot furnaces for all eternity? All eternity, just think of that. A whole lifetime goes by and it's nothing, not even a drop in the ocean of your sufferings. The woman was really interesting about hell, but my attention was all fixed on the half crown. At the end of the lesson, she put it back in her purse. It was a great disappointment. A religious woman like that, you wouldn't think she'd bother about a thing like a half crown. Another day, she said she knew a priest who woke one night to find a fellow he didn't recognize leaning over the end of his bed. The priest was a bit frightened, naturally enough, but he asked the fellow what he wanted, and the fellow said in a deep, husky voice that he wanted to go to confession. The priest said it was an awkward time and wouldn't it do in the morning, but the fellow said that last time he went to confession, there was one sin he kept back, being ashamed to mention it and now it was always on his mind. Then the priest knew it was a bad case because the fellow was after making a bad confession and committing a mortal sin. He got up to dress, and just then the cock crew in the yard outside, and lo and behold, when the priest looked round, there was no sign of the fellow, only a smell of burning timber. And when the priest looked at his bed, didn't he see the print of two hands burned in it? That was because the fellow had made a bad confession. This story made a shocking impression on me. But the worst of all was when she showed us how to examine our conscience. Did we take the name of the Lord our God in vain? Did we honor our father and our mother? I asked her, did this include grandmothers? And she said it did. Did we love our neighbor as ourselves? Did we covet our neighbor's goods? I thought of the way I felt about the penny that Nora got every Friday. I decided that between one thing and another, I must have broken the whole Ten Commandments, all on account of that old woman. And so far as I could see, so long as she remained in the house, I had no hope of ever doing anything else. I was scared to death of confession. The day the whole class went, I let on to have a toothache, hoping my absence wouldn't be noticed. But at three o'clock, just as I was feeling safe, along comes a chap with a message from Mrs. Ryan that I was to go to confession myself on Saturday and be at the chapel for communion with the rest. To make it worse, Mother couldn't come with me and sent Nora instead. Now that girl had ways of tormenting me that Mother never knew of. She held my hand as we went down the hill, smiling sadly and saying how sorry she was for me, as if she were bringing me to the hospital for an operation. Oh, God help us, she moaned. Isn't it a terrible pity you weren't a good boy? Oh, Jackie, my heart bleeds for you. How will you ever think of all your sins? Don't forget, you have to tell him about the time you kicked Gran on the shin. Let me go, I said, trying to drag myself free of her. I don't want to go to confession at all. But sure, you'll have to go to confession, Jackie, she replied in the same regretful tone. Sure, if you didn't, the parish priest would be up to the house looking for you. Tisn't God knows that I'm not sorry for you. Do you remember the time you tried to kill me with a bread knife under the table? And the language you used to me? I don't know what he'll do with you at all, Jackie. He might have to send you up to the bishop. I remember thinking bitterly that she didn't know the half of what I had to tell. If I told it, I knew I couldn't tell it and understood perfectly why the fellow in Mrs. Ryan's story made a bad confession. It seemed to me a great shame that people wouldn't stop criticizing him. I remember that steep hill down to the church and the sunlit hillsides beyond the valley of the river 
which I saw in the gaps between the houses like Adam's last glimpse of paradise. Then, when she had maneuvered me down the long flight of steps to the chapel yard, Nora suddenly changed her tone. She became the raging, malicious devil she really was. There you are, she said with a yelp of triumph, hurling me through the church door. And I hope he'll give you the penitential psalms, you dirty little caffler. I knew then I was lost, given up to eternal justice. The door with the colored glass panels swung shut behind me. The sunlight went out and gave place to deep shadow. And the wind whistled outside so that the silence within seemed to crackle like ice under my feet. Nora sat in front of me by the confession box. There were a couple of old women ahead of her, and then a miserable-looking poor devil came and wedged me in at the other side so that I couldn't escape even if I had the courage. He joined his hands and rolled his eyes in the direction of the roof, muttering aspirations in an anguished tone, and I wondered, had he a grandmother too? Only a grandmother could account for a fellow behaving in that heartbroken way, but he was better off than I, for he at least could go and confess his sins, while I would make a bad confession and then die in the night and be continually coming back and burning people's furniture. Nora's turn came, and I heard the sound of something slamming, and then her voice as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. And then another slam, and out she came. God, the hypocrisy of women! Her eyes were lowered, her head was bowed, and her hands were joined very low down on her stomach. And she walked up the aisle to the side altar looking like a saint. You never saw such an exhibition of devotion. And I remembered the devilish malice with which she had tormented me all the way from our door and wondered, were all religious people like that, really? It was my turn now. With the fear of damnation in my soul, I went in, and the confessional door closed of itself behind me. It was pitch dark, and I couldn't see priest or anything else. Then I really began to be frightened. In the darkness, it was a matter between God and me, and he had all the odds. He knew what my intentions were before I even started. I had no chance. All I had ever been told about confession got mixed up in my mind, and I knelt to one wall and said, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. I waited for a few minutes, but nothing happened. So I tried it on the other wall. Nothing happened there either. He had me spotted all right. It must have been then that I noticed the shelf at about one height with my head. It was really a place for grown-up people to rest their elbows, but in my distracted state, I thought it was probably the place you were supposed to kneel. Of course, it was on the high side and not very deep, but I was always good at climbing and managed to get up all right. Staying up was the trouble. There was room only for my knees and nothing you could get a grip on but a sort of wooden molding a bit above it. I held on to the molding and repeated the words a little louder. And this time something happened all right. A slide was slammed back, a little light entered the box, and a man's voice said, "'Who's there?' "'Tis me, Father,' I said, for fear he mightn't see me and go away again. I couldn't see him at all. The place the voice came from was under the molding, about level with my knees. So I took a good grip of the molding and swung myself down till I saw the astonished face of a young priest looking up at me. He had to put his head on one side to see me, and I had to put mine on one side to see him. So we were more or less talking to one another upside down. It struck me as a queer way of hearing confessions, but I didn't feel it my place to criticize. 
Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession, I rattled off all in one breath, and swung myself down the least shade more to make it easier for him. What are you doing up there, he shouted in an angry voice, and the strain, the politeness, was putting on my hold of the molding, and the shock of being addressed in such an uncivil tone were too much for me. I lost my grip, tumbled, and hit the door an unmerciful wallop before I found myself flat on my back in the middle of the aisle. The people who had been waiting stood up with their mouths open. The priest opened the door of the middle box and came out, pushing his beretta back from his forehead. He looked something terrible. Then Nora came scampering down the aisle. "'Oh, you dirty little caffler,' she said. "'I might have known you'd do it. I might have known you'd disgrace me. I can't leave you out of my sight for one minute.' Before I could even get to my feet to defend myself, she bent down and gave me a clip across the ear. This reminded me that I was so stunned I had even forgotten to cry so that people might think I wasn't hurt at all, when in fact I was probably maimed for life. I gave a roar out of me. "'What's all this about?' the priest hissed, getting angrier than ever and pushing Nora off me. "'How dare you hit the child like that, you little vixen!' "'But I can't do my penance with him, Father,' Nora cried, "'cocking an outraged eye up at him. "'Well, go and do it, or I'll give you some more to do,' he said, giving me a hand up. "'Was it coming to confession you were, my poor man?' he asked me. "'Twas, Father,' said I with a sob. "'Oh,' he said respectfully, "'a big hefty fellow like you must have terrible sins. "'Is this your first? "'Tis, Father,' said I. "'Worse and worse,' he said gloomily. The crimes of a lifetime. I don't know will I get rid of you at all today. You'd better wait now till I'm finished with these old ones. You can see by the looks of them they haven't much to tell. I will, Father, I said with something approaching joy. The relief of it was really enormous. Nora stuck out her tongue at me from behind his back, but I couldn't even be bothered retorting. I knew from the very moment that man opened his mouth that he was intelligent above the ordinary. When I had time to think, I saw how right I was. It only stood to reason that a fellow confessing after seven years would have more to tell than people that went every week. The crimes of a lifetime, exactly as he said. It was only what he expected, and the rest was the cackle of old women and girls with their talk of hell, the bishop, and the penitential psalms. That was all they knew. I started to make my examination of conscience, and barring the one bad business of my grandmother, it didn't seem so bad. The next time, the priest steered me into the confession box himself and left the shutter back the way I could see him get in and sit down at the further side of the grill from me. Well now, he said, what do they call you? Jackie, father, said I. And what's the trouble to you, Jackie? Father, I said, feeling I might as well get it over while I had him in good humor. I had it all arranged to kill my grandmother. He seemed a bit shaken by that, all right, because he said nothing for quite a while. My goodness, he said at last, that'd be a shocking thing to do. What put that into your head? Father, I said, feeling very sorry for myself, she's an awful woman. Is she, he asked. What way is she awful? She takes porter, father, I said, knowing well from the way mother talked of it that this was a mortal sin, and hoping it would make the priest take a more favorable view of my case. Oh, my, he said, and I could see he was impressed. And snuff, father, said I. That's a bad case, sure enough, Jackie, he said. And she goes round in her bare feet, father. I went on in a rush of self-pity, and she knows I don't like her. And she gives pennies to Nora and none to me. 
and my da sides with her and flakes me. And one night I was so heart-scalded and I made up my mind I'd have to kill her. And what would you do with a body, he asked with great interest. I was thinking I could chop that up and carry it away in a barrow I have, I said. Begore, Jackie, he said. Do you know you're a terrible child? I know, father, I said, for I was just thinking the same thing myself. I tried to kill Nora, too, with a bread knife under the table, only I missed her. Is that the little girl that was beating you just now, he asked. Tis, father. Someone will go for her with a bread knife one day, and he won't miss her, he said rather cryptically. You must have great courage. Between ourselves, there's a lot of people I'd like to do the same to, but I'd never have the nerve. Hanging is an awful death. Is it, father? I asked with deepest interest. I was always very keen on hanging. Did you ever see a fellow hanged? Dozens of them, he said solemnly, and they all died roaring. Jay, I said. Oh, a terrible death, he said with great satisfaction. Lots of the fellows I saw killed their grandmothers too, but they all said twas never worth it. He had me there for a full ten minutes talking, and then walked out the chapel yard with me. I was genuinely sorry to part with him because he was the most entertaining character I'd ever met in a religious line. Outside, after the shadow of the church, the sunlight was like the roaring of waves on a beach. It dazzled me. And when the frozen silence melted and I heard the screech of trams on the road, my heart soared. I knew now I wouldn't die in the night and come back, leaving marks on my mother's furniture. It would be a great worry to her, and the poor soul had enough. Nora was sitting on the railing waiting for me, and she put on a very sour puss when she saw the priest with me. She was mad jealous because a priest had never come out of the church with her. Well, she asked coldly after he left me, what did he give you? Three Hail Marys, I said. Three Hail Marys, she repeated incredulously. You mustn't have told him anything. I told him everything, I said confidently. About Gran and all, about Gran and all. All she wanted was to be able to go home and say I'd made a bad confession. Did you tell him you went for me with a bread knife, she asked with a frown. I did to be sure. And he only gave you three Hail Marys? That's all. She slowly got down from the railing with a baffled air. Clearly, this was beyond her. As we mounted the steps back to the main road, she looked at me suspiciously. What are you sucking, she asked. Bullseyes. Was it the priest gave them to you? Twas. Lord God, she wailed bitterly. Some people have all the luck. Tis no advantage to anybody trying to be good. I might just as well be a sinner like you. Isn't it wonderful when, as a child, you meet a sympathetic and understanding adult who can help you overcome your fears? And that doesn't change when you reach adulthood. Tell me your sins, my son. Uh, well, I, I should mention that I'm Jewish. Well, that's no sin. Oh, good. <laughs> anyway, I, I wanted to talk to you about Dr. Watley. I, I have a suspicion that he's converted to Judaism purely for the jokes. <laughs> and this offends you as a Jewish person? No, it offends me as a comedian. And it'll interest you to know that he's also telling Catholic jokes. Well... Uh... And, I mean, and they're old jokes. I mean, the Pope and Raquel Welch in a lifeboat. I haven't heard that one. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you have. They're out on the ocean and yada, yada, yada. And she, 
She says, those aren't buoys. <laughs> Father. One second. <laughs> well, if it would make you feel better, I could speak to Dr. Watley. Uh, I, I have to go back and have a wisdom tooth removed. Good luck. You know the difference between a dentist and a sadist, don't you? Um, Newer magazines. <laughs> That's funny. Now, if you would excuse me. I'm not the only one who reads and discusses literature in our programming. Webley Webster is also one of our contributors who loves a spirited discussion of plays and novels. Well, our Bob and Ray staff has been busy on fall features for the past week, and one of those which you have requested most is the Webley Webster Book Review, which, of course, has been quite popular in the past. And, Webb, I'm looking forward to a fall and winter of great books uh, brought to life in vivid description by you on these weekly visits. You, you put it real pretty, Bob. Well, as you know, the fall season, most of the publishers go to work. They get out a lot of books in the fall because people are back inside the house and they rave. Webley uh, suggests that people in the fall uh, are ready to settle down and read a good book now and Oh, then. Bob, you don't have to <clears throat> translate for me. Well, people thought, know what I'm saying. That maybe it was a little difficult for some That gets them. my goal. I don't know if I've ever told you that right, or not. Well, I won't But do every that. time I say something, <clears throat> you say, what Webley means to say, ladies and gentlemen. Well, all right, I they know what I'm saying. You're taking all the time now. Let's get What book have you got to review for this week? The Fanny Farmer Cookbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, then would have to do with food, and what recipe do you like best about... Well, there's so many wonderful recipes. I think on page 20, though, is the most interesting part of the whole book. Uh-huh. This ship is at sea for about four or five days. Uh, and as we look in on them... Ship at sea for in the Fanny Farmer cookbook? That's right. You, sh you sure you have the right book? You're reviewing the right one? Look, you mind your better than all my mind. But I see the Webley-Webster players over there. What are they... They're here to dramatize the... What I think is the most interesting part of the book. Sort of to what's your appetite. dramatize a cookbook, huh? Well, that's I don't what I'm going to do. All right. Page 48, then. It's shortly after four bells, and the ship's at sea for about eight days. And we look in, and... You sent for me, Captain? That's right, matey. Take a look at this here chart. Why, sir, you Where? got the chart upside down. Why, you... No, no. You'll keep a civil tongue in your head when you talk to the good captain of this tub. Digging your pardon, Captain. I, I just took a quick glance at the, at the chart there. I want you to take a good look at this chart, matey. Tell the captain where we are. Well, if it were me, sir, I'd say we're about 200 miles south of Hatteras, sir. What do you mean, if it be you? What kind of lingo is that to say to the good cap'n? Will you ask me, Why sir? Why, you... No. No. Get up off the deck, matey. Try to keep a civil tongue in your head. Now I then... Begging your pardon, sir. What be we have to eat? Well, we got some corned beef below, sir. A bit of blood pudding. Yeah. And some pilot crackers. Why, you... Oh. Oh. That's no bill of fare to recite to the cap'n, mate. Now get ye out of here. Aye, aye, sir. 
So that's wow. pretty exciting, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's exciting, yeah. That's the I... Fanny Farmer cookbook. Get it at any bookstore, Garrett. On the 14th of February, we sail from the land. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for staying tuned in. I'm Joe Weber saying goodbye here at the Voice of the Arts. Until next time. Man in the ship's company When bound from the eastward to the westward sailed we Well, we had not been sailing scarce days, two or three When the man in our mast had strange colors spidey they came bearing down on us far to see who we were And under a mizzen black colour she wore Oh Lord, cried our captain, what shall we do now? Here comes a bold pirate to rob us, I know Oh no, cried our first mate, that never shall be so Shake out a reef, boys, and away we will go. Then this bold pirate, he came alongside. With a loudspeaking trumpet, whence came you, he cried. Well, our captain being up, me boys, he did answer him so. Well, we come from fair London, and we're bound for Calio. Then back your main topsail and bring your ship to I have a long letter to send home by you When I back me main topsail and I bring me ship to It will be in a harbour not alongside of you Well they chased us to the windward all through the long day they chased us to the westward but could make no way They fired shots after us but none could prevail For the bold princess royal she showed them a tale Thank God cried our captain now the pirate is gone Go you down to your grog boys go you down everyone Go you down to your grog, boys, I and be of good cheer. While the princess has sea room, brave boys, never fear.